Hey there, thanks for joining me today for another episode of Lymphedema Podcast. My name is Betty. I'm a certified lymphedema therapist, passionate lymphedema advocate, wife, mother, and the voice behind Lymphedema Podcast. What began as a small passion project in 2019 to provide answers and explanations to people with the lymphatic disease lymphedema has now reached more than 75 countries. Whether you're a patient, caregiver, or medical professional, or someone interested in lymphedema, there is an episode here for you. Every week this season, there will be a new episode to help you learn more and navigate better your journey ahead. I am so passionate about teaching others about lymphedema that I created this podcast. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're ready to learn something new today. Welcome back for this special series on grief for lymphedema podcast. As Lymphedema Awareness Month has come to an end, I am more aware than ever of the silent grief many in the lymphedema community are experiencing. The person with lymphedema is not where those effects end. Lymphedema therapists, partners, spouses, parents, and the patient all experience grief in the one way or another. We are familiar with the idea of grieving the death of someone who we love, a pet, or a chapter in our lives, but what about grieving something you never had or something you had hoped for? For this series, I will interview a person, a CLT, partner or spouse of someone with lymphedema, parent and patient, and Marshall. Now, Marshall, he's going to introduce himself, but he is a marriage and family therapist in Texas, and he's going to be advising us and kind of walking us through what grief looks like for someone who has chronic illness or someone who is living with someone with chronic illness. Hey, Marshall, welcome to Lymphedema Podcast. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So we just got to know each other a little bit. Can you introduce yourself here for the lymphedema community? Sure. I'm I'm in Austin, Texas, and I've been a marriage and family therapist, supervisor, and a professional counselor supervisor for um, over 20 years. Um, I've, I've pursued my PhD in marriage and family therapy, about done with that, and, and, and work primarily in the world of, of grief and trauma. Uh, and I use expressive arts as my medium for, for helping. Um, I've been lucky enough um, to be trained as a play therapist. And so I work with kids all the way up to adults, in addition to supervision and consultation um, usually specifically in the world of a type of trauma therapy called EMDR that I bring in to, um, you know, work with poetry and pottery and sandry and all of these, you know, really engaging somatic and, and lyrical approaches to match with the subject matter that, that has its own ups and downs and rhythms. Um, I also get to teach some, you know, do some university work and as well as do some things on my own. So I uh, I just, I, I go where the wind blows. And that is how you ended up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate you agreeing to come on and talk with me. And I will, um, I always kind of like to be transparent and upfront, especially in the podcast. Many people who listen to the podcast already know that I do not personally have lymphedema. And so in this series, I am going to relate more to the therapist perspective, because I have grieved for my patients, um, for what they're going through, 
in, in the death of a patient, um, just seeing their struggle. So I'm, I'm always open that I do not have lymphedema. I don't have a child with lymphedema. My spouse doesn't have a lymphedema. I'm just a lymphedema therapist. And so on a lot of these levels, I, I'm just trying to dig in to get some answers for the people that I know and love here in the lymphedema community. So if my questions are really elemental and basic, it's because I don't have um, that great of an understanding. I want to ask two questions at the same time. What is grief and why is it every time I look up grief, it only really talks about death because grief isn't just related to death, right? It's not. Grief is about adjusting to loss, loss of any kind. And, you know, primarily, I think in the professional literature, uh, loss has been mostly associated with death. Um, but, you know, even to be honest, and to go with your example, it's often death of a human, like even, even loss of pets is not explored as much as it is deserved to be. Um, but any the gr grief is, is the, the act of having to accommodate to a new reality that, that comes after you've lost something. And, and it could be any of a number of different kinds of losses. And to make it even more complicated, there are many kinds of grief experiences. So I know this because in researching this morning for our conversation, um, I came across I think the website was whatsyourgrief.com and it has 18 types of grief listed. And I actually do want to go ahead and just spew these out real quick because the very last one is the one that I think resonates most with the lymphedema community. And I could be wrong, but just in my five or six years of experience with the community, um, I was thinking, I was like, that's not it. No, that one's not it. And then I got to the very last one and I was like, Oh, I think that's it. <clears throat> so here we go. Normal grief. And it even was like, ha ha ha. Yes. Normal grief. Let's talk about it. But normal grief, anticipatory, complicated, chronic, delayed, distorted, cumulative, prolonged, exaggerated, secondary, masked, absent, traumatic, collective, ambiguous, inhibited, abbreviated and disenfranchised. And that was the only one that said loss is not death. And all the other ones were basically death. A lot of people died. You were in shock and then you had like a delayed reaction. And then, you know, it's just like cumulative. And I was like, wow, only at the very end did they say not related to death. You know, I, I, there are several in the list that we can really apply to chronic illness, um, but I think disenfranchised is often the most important one uh, to bring forward and shed light on. In fact, I was lucky enough to get to co-author a chapter on disenfranchised grief among the chronically ill, and it's we just finished it um, last month, actually. Um, the, uh, there's a, a, a grief book, a disenfranchised grief book coming out, it's edited, and um, Two of us were specifically asked to, to represent the chronic illness population because both of us as authors are chronically ill. I have uh, muscular dystrophy. I've had it my whole life. And, and so disenfranchised is that type of grief where 
it's not publicly welcomed to be acknowledged. You know, that there, even though with certain kinds of um, griefs related to death, there can be the possibility of it being disenfranchised. Uh, it's, it's often these subjects that make people uncomfortable to acknowledge that then pull the community away from naming it or, or force the person experiencing the loss to not be able to be public about it because of, of shame or a lack of perceived support, um, things like that. I think that it, it's almost perfect to what I've heard or listened to people say to me when you, they talk about, you know, their child being diagnosed with lymphedema. And so I, I have a summer camp for kids with lymphedema called camp watch me. And, um, the parents there, they kind of have a weird humor thing, whatever they can't go to the park. Like I can go to the park with my son and say, Hey, have you guys had any new compression garments for Jimmy lately? I've been really wanting to try this brand. Like I can go and talk to someone and say, Hey, I've really been wanting to try these new shoes for Holt. What do you think? Have you guys tried these or whatever? Like you can't go and have that conversation because there's no one who understands what you're going through until they have that child with it. And it's not that common that you're going to have four or five kids in your neighborhood who have lymphedema. They may four or five kids might have asthma. They may have a peanut allergy and you can all bring peanut nut free snacks or whatever, but not everyone's going to understand that element of that chronic illness. That's not, you know, in the medical community, even really well understood. And so I think that brings something up that's worth talking about is that their grief is valid. And I don't know, how do you, how do you franchise it? I don't want it to be disenfranchised yeah. anymore. How do we get it out there and talk about it more? Well, the, my, my answer to that is probably going to be really complicated. We, we have to overthrow ableism. Step one, uh, because it, a lot of the reason that it's uncomfortable out in the world and it can't be acknowledged is um, people don't want to have to um, confront within themselves that their minds and bodies are temporary. And so most of ableism is built around this shared delusion that we will never lose access to our bodies. And so whenever someone's showing up saying, I'm needing to talk about my child who's sick and hurting, or I need to talk about my own experience of lymphedema, oftentimes, not always, it's, it's, but oftentimes it's, it's people who are uncomfortable with having to imagine that they could have that same experience. And so they would just rather not go there. And if they're not willing to imagine it, they can't go to empathy. And if they can't go to empathy, then, then your grief doesn't have a place to get to be held, to be resonated. And so you're left isolated and alone with something that you, you were already hurting physically, and now you're emotionally struggling on top of that. And, and so that, you know, step one is somehow this world have to start opening up and realizing that it's, it's built around an infrastructure of ableism that's preventing um, accessibility, not just physically, but emotionally to everyone getting equal um, access to what they need. 
Lymphedema Podcast is made possible by the support of Eros Medical, Bryland's Feet Foundation, Dr. Jenna Wishnu at Lamb Vascular and Associates, Juzo Compression, and MediUSA. For more information and to browse previous episodes, visit the Lymphedema Podcast website. I think this is a good time to look into the specific categories that I want to talk about because I think we really, you professionally just described what grief is and some of the limitations to being able to get that help, general like public acceptance of, you know, ableism and people needing to be seen for who they are and not what other people are, you know, maybe projecting onto them. So I want to start with um, lymphedema therapist. So that's me. I'm a lymphedema therapist and I did a short poll on my Instagram account for the podcast recently getting ready for this. And 90% of the CLTs who answered said that they have experienced grief in their work, working with patients with lymphedema. How can we support encourage or address the grief that therapists are experiencing, because I know from my experience, I just, I felt like I had to be really strong. And so all day at work, I'm, I'm meeting patients who are battling cancer, who are chronically ill, who may have a tumor protruding from their skin, undergoing chemo and radiation. They're in physical pain on top of their discomfort of lymphedema and the treatment I'm putting them through loss of appetite, family issues. I mean the whole thing. And I just felt like the whole time I had to be happy. I had to be supportive. I mean, there was one lady, I remember she was going through cancer treatment and she had lymphedema and I'm not supposed, I don't work there anymore, so they can't like do anything around it, but you're not supposed to just like sit in there and hang out with your patient. I mean, yes, you want to do one-on-one care, but there's an element of like, you have to multitask. You need to be getting the next person ready. You need to go do your notes. You need to be doing this and that. And I would straight up go to our freezer and be like, you want a fudge sickle? And I'd go in there and sit with her and eat a popsicle because she was on chemo and she was like, I'm not hungry. Like nothing sounds good. My daughter's mad at me. I'm not eating. And I was like, they have some popsicles. And she's like, so I would just sit in there and eat a popsicle with her. And I just felt like I had to bridge that gap or like be that for them. So like they could unload, you know, you can't tell your daughter, all these things you're feeling. You can tell me, you can't tell your doctor, all these worries you have, you can tell me. And then I'm like, what do I do with all of this? I'm not trained. <laughs> so how can we support those other therapists who are kind of doing the same thing that I was doing? I think popsicle interventions are brilliant. We should write that one up in a magazine for sure. I mean, I'll co-author the, with you. Perfect. <laughs> the, the first thing is we can't ever help someone feel empowered without first acknowledging the reality they're living in. So whenever providers come in and they try to immediately start changing states of mind without properly connecting to the current state of mind, that just further isolates the patient. They, they need someone to look at them and see them just as they are to be comfortable with their helplessness, um, to, to be, you know, emotionally present um, with, with their, their suffering before moving to strategies and solutions. 
that whenever you move prematurely to those conversations, people feel alone and and then the, the, the lack of connection from your provider causes you to not want to schedule again and you, you're not as motivated to show up um, for those uh, regular check-ins and those sorts of things. And so I, I, I think emotional attunement is key. Uh, the other thing that we don't talk about a lot for providers, and I don't know why, is everybody should be in therapy. Why, why don't we have support groups for, for providers? Why don't... Why don't we have mental health providers out there, you know, um, putting on their website, I specialize in, you know, responding to, to the needs of, of clinicians and providers and, and therapists and medical staff. Um, you know, I think in, in the COVID age, that's become a little more prominent. You know, that, that's become the, the need for that has become a little more known, but it's not new. Um, it, the, the burnout rate is unbelievable and, and we have to we have to be really aware of that specifically about grief though the, you know we all we all have the these neurons called mirror neurons that that are these wonderful gifts and that are that exist in, in in our brains and our minds where they both observe the actions of another and they initiate a similar action within yourself. And so if you're watching someone yawn, you're both taking in their yawn and you're remembering past yawns of your own and it causes you to yawn with them. Well, but- I'm about to yawn and everyone listening is about to yawn because I feel <laughs> it in my jaw right now. <laughs> they're, they're really powerful and they're really effective and they're, they're, they're such an important step to empathy. But the, 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 the complication be, can become that when you sit in other people's grief every day as a provider, sometimes you stop, you start losing perspective about what's their grief and what's my grief, because we've been ingesting their grief all day long. And we have to have some place to go and sort out which of these losses are mine and which of these losses are the pain of me witnessing others and having the vicarious experience. They're both legitimate, but our nervous systems need to know the difference between the two in order to handle them appropriately. I can relate to that. I really don't even know what to say. It's kind of profound because I have had, you just kind of like some patients more than others. I really have loved all my patients, but there are just some that you just really click with. You never forget them. And I don't know what it is about them, but there are some patients who, I mean, I was really grieved when, when they passed away, um, or I was really grieved when, um, they had to have an amputation because their lymphedema continued to get worse and they had infections and illness. And it was, you know, they didn't end up dying, but it could have killed them if they hadn't had that. I'm going to try to avoid my tangent of other types of like things that are overlooked, but sticking to grief, I was as happy go, you know, lucky person, just want to make everyone happy and, um, be a positive person. I would take that stuff home. And there were times where I'd be sitting at dinner with my husband and I would just be like fuming and just kind of like angry and like really emotional. And he's like, what's going on with you? And I would just like go off about work, but at work, I'm like happy and upbeat. And then when I get home, I'm like, Oh, I just have all this stuff. And I feel so awful. And Hey, you want to fight? I'm so mad. (laughs) And I just, I don't want that 
for therapists, because we talk about burnout and burnout is so real, but ignoring that is also really bad for us. I mean, that has to be toxic behavior because eventually my husband was like, I don't really want to sit here and eat with you because you're real grumpy. I just, you just need some time. And so it took me seeing like, okay, I am not decompressing before I get home or I'm bringing this stuff home that's work and it's not home stuff. And so I just, um, I wonder if there's other recommendations for CLTs, like what can we, what can we give them that's tangible that, okay, they're listening to this and they go, yeah, that's me. Here's two or three things you can do. Like, is there other than going to therapy? What, what is there right now that they could do? Yeah. That's as strange as it sounds. Give yourself permission to be sad. You know, the, the, you, you get to go have a moment of saying, this is gut-wrenching. This is painful. I, th- I think, you know, in a lot of medical and mental health training programs, it's talked about in, in this removed distance way that, that we, we get trained into believing that to be professional is to not to be over-attached, I say with quotes, or um, not to be too emotionally invested. And that leads to this false belief, one, that that's possible. And two, that that doesn't leave room for us to acknowledge um, our own feelings without having to feel guilty that we're somehow not doing our jobs well. So just having space to say, my heart hurts. This is impacting me. Um, I need to use my time off, not just for sick days. You know, I, I need every once in a while to make sure that I'm replenishing um, myself. I need to go and take some time away from work so that my mirror neurons can understand what's me and what's them. Um, and that, and, and to honestly, there are going to be a lot of moments where you're sitting with someone and part of the reason it's hitting you so hard is some part of them is familiar to you. And you're having to imagine relive a story from your past or imagine someone you love going through this. And and you don't always as a provider have that direct awareness. So when you do take that time away, even if it's five minutes in a closet at work, asking yourself the question, is there something about this person or their lived experience that feels familiar to me? And if you can just give that gift to your nervous system of naming that, sometimes the feelings will sink in and then release um, instead of us trying to push them away and never getting any sort of insight as to what's going on. So as you're saying this, I'm thinking of times in the office where I was sitting with a patient and I would say to myself, don't cry. Don't cry. Like I, in my mind, I'm like literally beating myself up and like, keeps like smile or like my face usually says everything I'm feeling. So like, I can't not tell you what's going on in here. I will try not to use my words, but my face will tell on me. And so I'd be like, okay, straight face, no words. Don't cry. Look empathetic. Don't look sad. Don't look like you have pity. And I'm like literally telling myself like be professional And right now I wish I could go back and tell myself, Betty, just freaking cry. Like Mm -hmm. if you feel really sad, you tell them and like, 
I'm going to cry myself. Cause I'm thinking like, wow, I might've robbed some of those people of being seen, feeling accepted. And I just faked it, you know, like I just walked out and maybe I went to the bathroom and cried, or maybe that's why I went home and like yelled at my husband. Cause I was sad or whatever. Um, but I think if there's a CLT who's listening to this right now, and you may not even be a CLT, you might be any variety of medical professional and you're working with patients freaking cry the next time the person in front of you is having a moment and you relate to it because you look human because you are, and they feel human because they are, and you can just be humans together. You don't have to be perfect and professional. So I'm really mad at myself right now. I wish I could go back. <laughs> oh, uh, we all have that. That That's not just you. I mean, even in my profession, I have this revisionist desire to be able to go back and tell former versions of myself things that would have been so helpful. And, and we can't go back and redo those moments, but we can go back to those parts of ourselves and let us re-experience it. And as silly as it sounds, imagining what you would have said instead will allow that to not stay locked up in you and, and it will integrate. So just going back in and saying, here's a moment that I replay. Here's a person. Here's a conversation. Here's a moment in time I wish I would have done differently do it in your imagination, go do it different and see what it feels like to give yourself permission to acknowledge the the version of yourself that you wish you would have been. And that will uh, allow some of your own grief a place to go. Thanks for listening to the first episode in this series on grief. That's going to last the whole month of April. Next week, when you come back, we're going to be talking about parent grief Special thanks to Marshall for joining us. His official closeout will come during the fourth episode at the end of the month. But I just want to say thank you again for all of his knowledge and professionalism. And guys, you can't tell this by listening to him, but he had told me just before the interview that he had a trip and he fell. After talking to him, you know, recording and everything is over. He told me he had a concussion and had made it through the podcast and the interview just fine. So he is a real trooper for staying and completing the interview with me. So if you have any questions, please email them to me. And if you would like to learn more about grief on the spectrum, Please continue to listen for the month's episodes. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Apple Podcast, Spotify, on the website, wherever you prefer to listen. Mother Teresa says, Loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. This podcast is here for you to find friendship and a community for your journey with lymphedema. I hope you enjoyed learning more about grief on the spectrum, the CLT's perspective. Remember, if there is a topic you're looking for, the website has the full library of podcasts. You can email me with your story if you would like to share lymphedemapodcast at gmail.com or visit the website lymphedemapodcast.com to submit a topic for another episode.